Um, and what who, King James, the actual King James, if you have a King James 1611 Bible, uh, that guy who uh, helped that translation, or at least was in charge of getting people to translate that, the King James Bible, King James called him America's first rebel. Uh, it was before the nation was founded, before it was even really a lot of colonies going on. Um, they were just, the pilgrims were just starting to come to shore. And King James calls him America's first rebel, John Quincy Adams, calls him altogether revolutionary. This is Roger Williams. I have mentioned Roger Williams before. I've made allusions to him, but I wanna, wanna talk a little bit more about Roger Williams, the revolutionary, the first rebel. So he's born in England. Uh, they don't know exactly when, but sometime around 1603, uh, as far as where he was born, but born in England. He's, he's born over there, but he grew up in the state. He grew up literally in the court of King James. So he, he would have learned, he would have been tutored. He was a pupil uh, of, of, of the king and in the court. And so, so very well educated, very versed, but he grew up in what's called the Church of England. What is the Church of England? You maybe have heard of it. Most likely you didn't grow up in that. It's not a very popular thing in the United States, although there are churches of England here, but it's not super popular. Obviously it's more popular in England, as you can imagine. What is it? What is the Church of England? Well, prior to 15, what is it? 1534, there was just a Catholic church, okay? So the Catholic church was a, was a big deal, still is a big deal. But King Henry VIII, if you remember this guy, pretty notorious for having six wives. And as he's married and he's unable to produce an heir, um, because of course it's the woman's fault, <laughs> no way it's his fault after five wives, it's gotta be the woman's fault, not mine, uh, cannot produce an heir. And, and the, the church, the Catholic church will not annul his marriages, it won't do it. They said, no, 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 we can't. This was a, an actual legitimate Catholic wedding. Uh, we can't just annul this. It doesn't work that way. And so he was like, fine, you don't get to tell the king what to do. Therefore, I'm gonna start my own church where I'm the boss. And he starts the Church of England. I'm not making this up. This is what happened. So in 1530, 34, he starts the Church of England. It's literally copy paste of the Catholic church except now it's called the Church of England, okay? That's their own thing. But instead of a, a, a pope or, or, or a vicar who's in Rome, he is the head of the church, okay? So, so, the, so the, the king of England now becomes the, the lead guy of the Church of England. And guess what? He says, my marriages are annulled. <laughs> now I'm good. I'm good with God. I'm good with everybody. Now we can just continue. That is the church that this guy, Roger Williams, grows up in, in England. And obviously King James would have been would have been part of that. However, there were some things going on in the church that people didn't really like. They were um, getting away from the pure aspect of the scripture of what God was teaching, what they thought. And so they said, hey, right, the, 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 uh, the, the um, uh, Reformation was happening in Europe, right? Luther and Calvin, they're already uh, gone by this point. They're, they're dead at this point. So the revolution is happening. So they said, okay, we don't want to start a new church. We don't want to become Lutheran. Uh, we don't want to become those people. They're, they're, they're separatists. They're anti-anything with the Church of England. So we're going to purify it. And so this group of pilgrims then said, where in the world could we have the freedom to make the church what we want it to be? And so they set out for the new world and they go to America. They get to America and this guy, Roger Williamson gets there and he's trying to purify the church. So they're called Puritans, trying to purify the church of England and make it what it should have been and make it better or make it stronger. The issue again though, within the church of England is that there is no separation of church and state. As you can imagine, that would get kind of messy. When, when the king 
when the, ch- when the state is the church and the church is the state. So what would happen is if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you'd get fined, right? If you didn't tithe to the church, you'd go to jail, right? You can see the problems with this. Roger Williams, though, he's a young guy, he's 28. He's now in Boston uh, and, and they say, hey, you should be a minister. And as he's being interviewed, he realizes I can't do this job. But he's, um, what is the word? He's un... Um, marketable, maybe. Uh, he, he has no other skills other than theology, right? It'd be if I got fired or if I lost this job or I left the church, I, 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 don't, I don't know, I can sell maybe some used cars. Like I have no, I, I have no skills. Um, and that's the kind of where he was. So he became a little a farmer just outside of Boston. And then they, they finally like, you can't even be here. Like you, you, are, you are talking, you're saying things that are revolutionary, in the sense of separation of church and state. He gets kicked out of Boston. He moves up to where just the wilderness of north to uh, Rhode Island, which before it was Rhode Island. And he starts with a couple other friends, the, the city of Providence, Rhode Island. He starts the first Baptist church in the United States. Um, and he becomes a Baptist. He kind of makes Baptists what it is. And he does this huge aspect, this new way of separation of church and state. I don't care what religion you want to, what God you want to worship or not be any kind of Christian or anything, you have the freedom and the right to do that. That was revolutionary. He was a rebel when it came to that, but he gets kicked out of Boston. Like I mentioned, he starts Providence, but then he writes this article and it's called Christening Makes Not Christians, which you've probably heard me say before. If you've been around Lower Town for a while, you've probably heard me say that and quote Roger Williams, christening makes not Christians. And this is a, just a brief, you can go online, you can read this. It's, a, it's called, it's a brief discourse. Apparently they didn't have S's for some and then it becomes F's. I don't know why. A brief discourse concerning the name heathen commonly given to the, and then he uses that, that word Indians or that he's gonna call them people of America we would call Native Americans, right? So, so he's saying that the, the Puritans are going into the Native Americans and they're literally forcing them to become Christian, gathering them around and saying, right, getting some holy water, you're baptized, you're baptized, you're baptized. Hey, guess what? You're all good. You're all going to heaven. And they're like, we don't speak English. We don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, it doesn't matter, right? You're, you're, you're heathens, right? But, but now you're okay. And he's going, and Roger Williams is like, what? This doesn't make any sense christening, right? Just saying someone's a a Christian doesn't make them a Christian. So he writes this whole paper. Let me give a brief uh, quote from him in this. It says, it is not a suit. Again, he uses an F instead of an S. It is not a suit of crimson. Satan will make a dead man live. Take off and change his crimson into white and he is still dead. Off with that and shift him into cloth of gold. And from that to cloth of diamonds, he is but a dead man still. For it is not a form nor the change of one form into another, a finer and a finer and yet more fine that makes a man a convert. I mean such a convert as is acceptable to God in Jesus Christ, right? We we might read that and go, yeah, I think we understand that, right? I think we understand it's not the way I I look, or it's not the church blessing me or getting baptized or doing Holy Communion or, or going to do the catechisms or anything like that that makes me a Christian. There's something that needs to happen on the inside. But yet that was not, that was revolutionary, at least at this time in America, what was called the Americas at the time. So that leads me then into this week's sermon, which I've titled Jesus, the best 
rebel. Our passage this morning is going to be Romans chapter 2, 17 through 29. I'll be coming back to Roger Williams in a little bit, but just leading this up into Jesus, the one who started this rebellion. You're going to see some very similar language between Jesus and the Apostle Paul in Romans and John, John, Roger Williams, excuse me. Because we're going to see that Jesus is also a separatist. He doesn't want to purify Judaism, right? He's not a Puritan. He wants to separate from it. Not saying, hey, you, you people are bad. He's like, let's look at this. You're doing this form. You're this form on the outside without function and you're dead. There's no meaning to what you're doing. We got to look at what's going on in the heart. And so he's going to specifically, this is Jesus, is going to address the Pharisees, right? Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, the pastors, the priests, whatever, right? They, they had the scriptures. And you gotta remember, this is before the printing press, okay? So, so when people didn't know the Bible, if you were not a pastor or a Pharisee, you didn't have copies of your own unless you hand wrote them yourself. You just didn't have access to them. And so you, you had to go to the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law to hear the word of God read, right? You, you had to sit under the teaching. You can't, you get to do that. If I say something that's just not scriptural or I read a passage and I misinterpret it, you can go, mm, Google that. No, you're wrong. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, right? They didn't have that. And so when you have someone who's in this position of power and religious authority that says, this is how you ought to be living, the people would go, hmm, okay. I guess, I guess you, I mean, you know better than I do. I don't ever think that about me or anybody who comes up here that we know better than you. It's just not true. I've had to study the same Bible that you have access to. These Pharisees though, what they would do is they took Levitical law, laws that were intended for the Levites who were the priests. And they said, hey, Messiah hasn't come yet, right? We're Jews, we're waiting for the Messiah to come, but he hasn't come back yet. So we need to make Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Israel pure, better, more holy. So the way that we're going to do that is we're going to take some really strict laws. We're going to add an extra biblical book called the Mishnah to that. And then we're going to add another extra biblical book called the Talmud to that. And we're going to obey all of these laws. And if we obey these laws and we won't break these laws, and if we obey these laws, get it? Really extra holy on all the things. And so they take things like Deuteronomy chapter six, verse eight, which talks about how the words of God should always be between your eyes and, and bound to your hands. And they would take that and they took it quite literally. And so you've ever, they're called phylacteries. And so we're, I'm bringing this up because Jesus is going to talk about this. These things, they would actually put a box on their forehead that had scriptures written on them. They would have these tassels on their, on their, on their robes. There were prayer tassels to remind them to be in prayer. And this was something that people would do from time to time. Um, if you've ever watched The Chosen, if you've ever seen The Chosen, where they, they pray as they go into a house, they have prayer tassels that they would do on specific holy days or dates or when they would pray. But these guys said, no, no, we're gonna do them all the time, all the time, being extra holy, extra religious. So that way, maybe the Messiah will come. And I think their intentions initially were, were good, but then Jesus, Jesus shows up. And he starts talking about these religious leaders. And you can imagine the rebellion, the revolutionary that he is when he would say these things against the religious leaders. Starting in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse one, it says this, Jesus is talking here to his disciples. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That was just a stone chair that would have been in synagogues that, that, a, that a Pharisee or a teacher of the law would have had. They would have opened the scroll 
and they would read from it and they would teach from it the same way that, that we do on a, on a weekly basis. We open God's word and we teach. They would have done the same thing. Just and he's sitting in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Right? And he's not saying that facetiously. He's saying they're, they're teaching God's word, opening God's word and they're teaching. And he says, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, that's their, these boxes with the scriptures. They make their phylacteries wide and use tassels on their garments long, right? Because they wanna be seen. They love to place, they love the place of honor at banquets. And again, this would have been a position of, 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 of authority and influence and intrigue. You'd go into a party and there was kind of assigned seating, but not assigned seating on your name. It was assigned seating on like a cultural respect and honor. And so they would walk in and they would go sit down next to the host of the party thinking that they were the ones that deserved the most honor and glory. They loved to sit in these seats and the most important seats in the synagogues, very similar in a synagogue. They loved to be greeted with respect in the marketplace, to be called a rabbi by others. This was a thing I remember growing up, uh, just not part of our culture here. And it's okay if maybe it's part of your culture and maybe the way you grew up. But I know that uh, my dad uh, really had a hard time when people called him Rod, which was his name. He, you know, he's like, oh no, it's, it's Pastor Rodney. You know, it's like, oh, geez, like, is, it, is it really that important, right? I think I'm the opposite, you know, maybe because I've, I've like swung the pendulum the other way, you know, like don't, please don't stop. You don't call me pastor. It's fine. Just, I'm Brian, uh, right? And it's not because of this, <laughs> right? But just be treated with respect, right? I, I want you to call me this, but you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and you are not to call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. I may have mentioned this before, but it, I'll say it again just because it cracks me up. But the other day, a couple, maybe a month or two ago, we're sitting around the table and um, Henry, Henry goes, mom, you're the best mom in the world. You're like the number one mom. Dad, you're the, you're the second best dad. You're like the number two dad. And I was like, what, what does that mean? And he was like, well, you know, God is the best dad. He's, he's the best father and you're number two. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Just don't go around saying I'm the second best dad. You know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta clarify that, right? So my son at least gets this aspect. Don't call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to, called to, be, to, to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah, me, Jesus. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he's going to address, I'm going to skip forward in the text to verse 23. Now he's going to change. He's actually, he's actually going to address the Pharisees. All right, so he's talking to the disciples, but now he's going to call out the religious leaders. Woe to you. This doesn't just mean like, hey, whoa, stop. Hey, chill out. This is, this is warning. This is condemnation in that word, woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the, of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, again, warning, condemnation to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and dead of everything unclean. What is he talking about? Jesus, right? He rises from the dead. He's in a tomb. It's a tomb that's carved out of, out of, the, out of a rock and a stone, and that's what they do. Traditionally, they would wrap up uh, dead bodies, and they would place them, right, uh, in these tombs, and they would begin to decay naturally, right? And so they would wrap them with spices, and they would make sure they, it's, you know, as best they could, and it smelled okay. And after a year or two, when it fully decayed, it was just a pile of bones, and they would take then those bones and move them and put them in these little boxes called the sarcophagus, right? Which is what he's talking about. You're, this, you're a box of bones that has been painted white. You look great. You, you, you look clean and beautiful, but on the inside, it's just full of dead man bones. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of, here's that word again, hypocrisy and wickedness. Right, Jesus' biggest contention or point of rebellion against the Jewish leaders isn't that he wants them to like stop worshiping God. Hey, no, no, you're, you're, you're in a false religion. You're not, this isn't right. You're not worshiping Yahweh. You're not, you're not doing this thing right. He's, he's specifically going into how they were doing it. They're doing it for themselves to show, to look a certain way. Moving on, I want to briefly go back and just remember a reminder of their town of Rome. And I read this probably in week two. And we'll read it again of, of the context of what's happening here in, in Rome, right? But we got to understand what, what would they, how would they have read this initially as a Roman Gentile or Jew reading this book of the Romans because it's written to them, but for us. And so we'll, we'll get to application in a little bit, but let's go back to, to them. So I'm going to read and quote here from Douglas Moo. Let me just read this quickly and, and get us set the stage a little bit, a little bit more. An important event in the history of the Jews in Rome is mentioned by the Roman historian Sentinelistus. In his life of Claudius, he says that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they're constantly rioting at the instigation of Christus. Most scholars agree that Christus is a a corruption of the Greek Christos and that the uh, reference is probably to dispute, uh, sorry, probably to disputes within the Jewish community over the claims of Jesus to be the Christos or Messiah. Christ just means Messiah. All right, so the Jews are now becoming Christians, followers of the Christ, of Christos, of the Messiah, of Jesus, and they're, they're causing some issues. So Claudius, the emperor at the time, says, get out, all the Jews, you're just done. You're, you're out of here. And the Gentile Christians remain. That is every other ethnicity state. The significance of this scenario for the Romans is clear. Gentile Christians, undoubtedly part of the community before the expulsion, would have come into greater prominence as a result of the absence of all or most of the Jewish Christians. Theologically, this would have also meant an acceleration of the movement of the Christian community away from its Jewish origins. Claudius' decree of expulsion was apparently allowed to lapse within a few short years, perhaps at his death at AD 54, so that when Paul writes in AD 57, Jewish Christians, such as Priscilla and Aquila, have returned to Rome, but no longer as the dominant group. These circumstances are a recipe for division along social and or theological lines. So let's look at these Gentile rebels, right? Because this is what the, the, the Jews that came back, followers of Jesus, they get kicked out of Rome, they come back and they go, what have you done to the church? Right, you, you've, you've gone away from our, our rules, our, our, our laws that we, that we have. They, they don't like it when people eat pork. Well, guess what? I'm, I'm in Christ and I can eat pork now to the glory of God, right? Acts chapter 10 and 11, there's two old chapters based, dedicated to bacon, Okay. 
So Jewish Christians come back and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You cannot be doing these things. What's going on? Well, you don't rem- you're not remembering this holy day, this, this, this moon, this, this thing that we're gonna celebrate. Whoa, 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 no, because we're, we're different now. We're, we're followers of Christ, not, not Judaism. Something's changed. And they know that they're followers of Christ, but they, like, they just like some of the, their identity and rules. So I'm gonna read this passage of Romans chapter two, verse 17 through 29. And again, this phrase here, but if you call yourself a Jew, he's specifically talking to Jewish Christians who also have a deeply seated belief that their Jewish and their heritage and their salvation comes from their Jewish heritage. We've been looking at this last couple of weeks. They thought, if you wanna be saved, then you gotta get in my, my, my life raft that is Judaism. You need to become a Jew. And the way you do that is your heritage. So this is who Paul is addressing. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light of those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You should hear a little bit of overlap between Jesus's theology and his teaching to the disciples and the Pharisees and now what Paul is now saying to these Jewish Christians. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I'm gonna go back. I wanna reread this on, on Good Friday. Uh, Steve Treichler, uh, senior pastor, he, he had mentioned that a couple years ago, he started reading the Bible as if he was the bad guy, right? Because it's, it's, it's not natural for us to do that, right? When we read a story, we, we wanna paint ourselves as the hero. When we read about the Revolutionary War, we wanna, you know, George Washington's the hero, right? It's like, okay, well, maybe let's read this as the bad guy. And so let's put ourselves into this story, not to condemn the Jews or condemn the overly religious. Let's put ourselves in that position. But if you, church, call yourself religious and rely on good deeds and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the Bible the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And when you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery according to Jesus, if you have an impure thought about somebody, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob Temples, you who boast in good works, dishonor God by not doing all the good works. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is a wild phrase. And I think it should humble everyone in the room. That the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Not gonna get into the context, but Paul here is, is quoting Ezekiel 32, uh, 22. I don't want that on my tombstone, right? I don't want it to be said of me, O'Brien was a, was a good pastor. 
He was a good friend. He was a great dad, right? All the, all the names and all the titles that you put on someone's tombstone, right? Like, yeah, yep, good dad, good father, good brother, good pastor, but asterisk. His name, God's name is actually blasphemed among the Gentiles because of him. He did everything seemingly right in the church, but man, outside of it, people, people hate Jesus because of him. It's interesting because Jesus, at least usually when I talk to people about Jesus, Jesus is quite attractive. Jesus is, is quite intriguing. The way he lives, the way he teaches, there's something irresistible about the love that Christ has for us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin that people are drawn to. It just sounds too good to be true. And usually what ends up happening is that his followers get in the way. Why? Because we're hypocrites. We, we, we preach, and, I, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here. I'm not, I'm not thinking of anybody other than me when I talk about this. But when we see the words of Jesus and Paul and Roger Williams, what make people reject God is hypocrisy over and over and over again in the church. And I can look at myself and my story and look at the pastors who committed atrocious acts and go, they're, they're hypocrites. Why would anyone want to be a follower? And I had to wrestle with that. I had to fall back in love with Jesus. <laughs> I had to fall back in love with Christ, not the Christians. Moving on in Romans chapter two, verse 25, it says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. What is going on here? Circumcision. What is circumcision? Circumcision comes from the Old Testament. Comes in when God shows up to Abraham and he says, this is gonna be an outward mark, an outward symbol that you are now part of my covenant community, that you're gonna take your males and on the eighth day, a male is going to be circumcised. So it's going to show physically that you are part of this community, this Hebrew community, this covenant people of God. This is a mark or a sign of the covenant, which is why, depending on what tradition you grew up in, why churches today will baptize small infants. And if they're really to the letter of the law, they'll do it on the eighth day, right? They'll baptize little babies to say, see, that was a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. I don't agree with that, but that's why people do that, okay? If you break the law, so here, so circumcision, this outward sign is, is indeed of value if you obey the law, all of the law, but if you break the law, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? See what he's getting at? Don't get caught up in the word circumcision because he uses it a lot, all right? But he's saying, okay, but if I am not an outward symbol of this covenant people, but I love God and I do my best to obey him, but even when I fall short, it's what's on the inside and my soul is renewed by Jesus Christ. Doesn't that count? That's what Paul is saying. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Paul here is not saying you can do it perfectly because the whole, the whole premise, this doesn't make any sense. If I'm uncircumcised, I can't keep all the law because part of the law was to be circumcised. Okay, he's, he's, he's kind of tongue in cheek here. I'm saying it, it can't be done, but even the person who is uncircumcised and they do everything written in the law, they're gonna judge you. 
You're not above them and superior to them because you're Jewish. It doesn't work that way. And specifically, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Again, keep in mind his audience, these Jewish Christians who would have said, oh no, I'm a descendant of Abraham. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's this mean? It's not obeying a list of rules. There's not some rules, not some uh, you know, code of conduct handbook I could give you, and that if you obeyed it perfectly, would make you good, would make you in. Right? It's not about outward appearance. And I don't think we need to really talk about that. I think it's just not part of our culture. If you grew up like me, it for sure was part of our culture. I couldn't have hair that touched your ears or, the, or your collar in the back. Who, where's that come from? Couldn't, couldn't have a beard, had to be clean shaven because of course we know Jesus was clean shaven, which is why we know because he stayed up all night long the night he was crucified. And when they plucked his beard, it was because it was just starting to grow some, some stubble and they had to rip it out. What? It's crazy. I, I remember the president of my university said, uh, a God, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's a biblical truism. Man looks on the outward appearance, therefore we need to look like Christians. And apparently looking like Christians means wearing a suit everywhere you go, because that's what Christians do. Suits are not worldly. Did you guys know that? They are okay in God's eyes. None of it makes any sense. It's not about just obeying the law and being and having this outward appearance. Specifically, again, Roger Williams says this in that article. Now for the hopes of conversion, all caps, I don't know why. Now for the hopes of conversion and turning the people of America unto God. Okay, so turning the, the Native Americans, the people of America unto God. Let's, let's, he's gonna say, talk, talk about this. You can understand if we put, again, put ourselves in, in their shoes of Puritans or the Church of England, this would for sure be revolutionary. This is wild talk. There is no respect of persons with God. Whoa, hey man, now you're saying we're equals. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. There is no respect of persons with him. For we are all the work of his hands. From the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, his name shall be great among the nations from the east and from the west. And if we respect, and if we respect their sins, they are far short of European sinners. Whoa, Roger. Dude, you can't say that. They neither abuse such corporal mercies, for they have them not. Well, you're going to talk about the Bible and, and everything that God has given us, and yet we still reject him? They don't even have that. How can you call them worse sinners? Nor sin they against the gospel light, which shines not amongst them as the men of Europe do. But if they were greater sinners, even if they were, let's just say, if they were greater sinners than they are, or greater sinners than the Europeans, they are not the further from the great ocean of mercy in that respect. <laughs> we might look down on them. We might look down on others. And what Jesus, what Paul, what Roger Williams is trying to get to, look at your heart. Look at your heart. 
we have the good news and we still sin. We still reject God. So let's briefly look at our town, just an application. If you want an application, here it is. Stop being a hypocrite. Hopefully you've been around hope long enough. You go, mm, I don't know if I like that. Here's why. That's law, right? If, if, if it's literally just, just stop it. That's the answer. The answer is stop it. It's law. And then when I stop being a hypocrite, I then start judging other people for being hypocrites. You see what's happening here? That's law. That's not the gospel. What is it then? The gospel is you are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite and I, am, I, I need that ocean of mercy. I need that. And I'm not, I'm not being facetious with that. I need that more than you. Something my, my, my kids do, Jack especially, we, he, he just started saying this. He's like, I, I love you more than you love me. And I go, that's impossible, right? It's kind of a, kind of a thing, another Star Wars thing here. I said, it's not, it's not possible, man. You don't, you don't, you don't understand. I, I'm, a hip, I'm more of a hypocrite than you are. We're so quick to look down on someone with visual sins, right? It's it just, it's so easy to stand up on a platform. I do it every Sunday, literally, and look down at people with visual sins. People have really have explosive anger or they're abusive or they have an addiction, right? And those are just the A's. <laughs> There's a long list of sins that we can visually see with somebody. It's really struggling and it's so there's just something in us that goes, yeah, I'm, I'm better than you. Or, or God clearly gave me more of that ocean of mercy. The waves didn't quite make it up to you. It's hypocrisy. A while back, uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And these hit home. What are some of the underlying sins that we are so hypocritical to look at other people with outward sins? Ungodliness obviously fills in a lot. Anxiety and frustration. Whoa, Jerry, don't you be calling my anxiety sin. Jesus does. Discontentment, holy smokes. I hate the Joneses, not you. I hate keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> <laughs> my lawn is garbage and my neighbors look so good. I'm always so, I mean, the other day when it was nice, remember that? When it was like 80 degrees? My kids are in the front yard making a, like a mud pit, right? They start the hose and it's just, they're, we're making a monster truck track. Uh, but what are the neighbors gonna think about my mud pit? You know what I mean? Like it's just discontentment. And I joke about it, and I probably shouldn't be joking about it, but my, my heart, why? It's stupid grass. So stupid. Unthankfulness. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I'm just not thankful for this. This thing. It's a respectable sin. Pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, and irritability. Easy, Jerry. Judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness. I don't want to just leave it there in the sense of, wow, man, I, yeah, I am a sinner. I am a hypocrite. But we need to go to Jesus. 
One author in his review of this book, Keith Madison from Ligonier Ministries says this, Bridges, however, does not have time, uh, does not leave it at this, right? Which is what we, we're not just exposing sins. Look how bad you are. He does not stop with the bad news. He places his discussion of the sin in, con- in context of the gospel of Christ. The only remedy for sin. He reminds us that the reason Christ died on the cross was in order to atone for the sins of his people, in order to deal effectively with sin, whether flagrant or respectable. Christians need to preach this gospel to themselves every day. Thank you for plagiarizing Luther. We got to beat it into our heads every day. That's what Luther says. Bridges, he didn't plagiarize. That's not calling him a sinner. Bridges also reminds us that in order to deal with sins, we must depend on the Holy Spirit, right? When we, when we take God out of it, it becomes law and legalism. I'll do better. I'm gonna fight sin. I need, I need God to help me in this process. This does not mean taking a quietistic let go and let God approach because our action is still required, but our action apart from the work of the Holy Spirit will be ineffective. So in gospel application, let's swim in the great ocean of mercy. We need the ocean of mercy. I need, to, I need to see my sin. I need to see who I am. Again, look at myself as the bad guy in the story that I do look down on others. I do judge. I, I even judge others for their opinions. I judge others for their political viewpoints or their, 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 their social values or, or whatever it may be. I, I, I look down, I, ju- I need the ocean of mercy. I need this because I'm a hypocrite and I want to point people to Jesus, not have them turn away or blaspheme him. So let's together swim in this great ocean of mercy. Let's confess sin to God and to one another. And let's rely on the Holy Spirit to then help us to purify and to be holy like him because of his sacrifice that is finished. Every week at Hope, we do communion. We have communion, the Lord's table. And we go to these elements, the, the, the wafer that represents his body that was broken for us, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And we take these elements to remember the finished work of Christ on the cross to know that there's nothing I can do to add to my perfection or my goodness or my holiness. That's outward. That's that's a dirty cup. That's a whitewashed tomb. I need my heart to be renewed. I need my soul to rest in him. And so we take these elements to remember, again, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Um, All I would ask is that you're a a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church, but if you you love Jesus and you say, yeah, I, I am a hypocrite, And I need Jesus. I need that ocean of mercy to to wash away my sins. Then I would love for you to partake of these elements with us this morning. I'm gonna pray and the worship team's gonna come back up and sing a couple of songs. And as you see fit, grab those elements, partake of them, and um, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your ocean of mercy. I thank you that I need it more than anybody else. And I thank you that um, you are capable of giving that ocean of mercy to everyone who, who comes to you. It is so abundant. Your mercy is so deep and so rich and infinite. And so when we see our sin, when your spirit exposes our sin and we see ourselves as unlovable or unworthy or gross or disgusting, 
that you come to us and you wrap your arms around us and you pick us up and you say, I got you. I will take your sin upon myself. I will take my robe of righteousness off. I will clothe you in that. I will call you my brother. I will call you my sister. And we can feast together at the freedom that we have in Christ because it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. God, we love you for that. We love your son. Pray now that we have these elements that we would just um, confess our sins to ourselves, to others if necessary. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.